Well, good morning. Welcome to Mount Calvary Church. If you are visiting with us today, my name is Ray Stewart. I'm the Connections Pastor here at Mount Calvary, and I'm very glad that you're here. Uh, my desire uh, really is to connect you uh, to, with, with other people in relationship and service uh, and through Bible study. So if I can do that uh, to help you connect, I would love to. So today is Father's Day. Uh, everybody knew that, right? I didn't need to say that, I guess. All right, so today is Father's Day. Um, and as a father of three children, one of the things that I experienced, well, let me back up a second. You have to know this about me. I approach new things with lots of hesitation, right? I'm scared of new things. I like routine and sameness. I don't like change. It just doesn't work well for me. So when we had each of our three children, I approached the fact that we were pregnant and having a child uh, with different fears, okay? So you just got to know, I'm I'm worried because I don't know what to expect, right? So with Andrew, um, I can remember... Uh, when Andrew was born, holding Andrew in the hospital and saying, God, I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> there is no way that I can do this. You know, I, I, I didn't have, um, I love my dad and my dad, uh, my dad showed me unconditional love and support throughout my life. Uh, but my dad didn't, my, my dad didn't teach me what it meant to be a Christian, right? I became a Christian later in life. And so I'm like, how do I teach my son to love Christ? No, nobody, nobody showed me how to do that. And so I remember holding Andrew and I was scared because I was like, God, I can't do this. I need your help. When Catherine came along, uh, I was worried. I loved and adore Andrew. And if you, Andrew's not in the room, he's in the nursery this morning. Uh, if Andrew were standing here and I, we were to show a picture of me at 12, um, the only difference is he doesn't have glasses. Uh, so maybe he got his mom's eyesight, uh, but everything else, he's the spitting image of me and he is, his personality and quirks are, they're me, uh, to Morgan's, um, uh, I don't know. Morgan doesn't know, doesn't know if he'll survive childhood, uh, but I did. So, but when Catherine came along, I adored Andrew so much. I'm like, how could I love a child as much as I loved Andrew? And Morgan had a picture for me to share this morning, and I didn't, I didn't put it in the PowerPoint, so I apologize. Uh, and it was just a picture of me holding Catherine and just looking upon her with adoration because I'm like, this is my daughter that I love. With Abby, when Abby was born, uh, I, it was much more practical. I was concerned, how in the world am I going to survive three kids? Uh, you move from you move from uh, one man to man defense right uh, with two kids to zone and and it was just crazy so uh, so families that have more than three uh, man wow you're 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 amazing but so with each of the children each of our children I had I had a fear and now my children probably have the fear that how are they going to survive me uh, as their dad but. And so happy Father's Day. And so I, for, for, with it being Father's Day, I wanted to look, uh, I wanted to look at our, our Heavenly Father, our perfectly, perfect Heavenly Father. Because as a dad, I'm not perfect. As a dad, I fail and I mess up. I lose my temper and shout at my children. I, I have unrealistic expectations. Um, I, they frustrate me to no end at times. I fail to love them and to extend grace to them. I fail to be patient with them. I fail all the time. And I don't want them to look at me and say, this is what a dad is supposed to be because I don't feel like I can speak authoritatively to that. I feel like I mess up. But they have a perfect heavenly father who never fails them, 
who will never leave them or forsake them. And so whether your dad, uh, your dad was, was an amazing dad or your dad wasn't in your life at all, know that you have a perfect heavenly father that loves you and cares for you. And, and that's what I want us to look at today on Father's Day. I want us to look at, at our heavenly father. I want to take the tension off of us uh, as dads uh, and look upon him uh, as the perfect father uh, that never fails us and never leaves us. And so as we look at our perfect heavenly father, I want us to consider uh, today, we're going to look in Luke chapter 15. Uh, I want us to consider how can we rejoice Right? How can we celebrate that God is our perfect heavenly father? And so we're going to look at some truths out of Luke chapter 15, uh, some application to, uh, to see that. But before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for a dad that while he wasn't perfect, he supported me in everything that I did in life. God, I thank you for other men that you've put into my life to be spiritual dads to me, that taught me what it meant to be a Christian and to follow after you, that taught me how to study your word, that, that lovingly corrected me and showed me where I fell short. But God, I'm thankful for you more than anything else, that you, you are the perfect heavenly father. You are the perfect father for my children. While I will fail them, and Lord, while I will mess up, you will never do that. You will never let them down. God, I pray today that you help us to see you, to rejoice in you, to celebrate you uh, on Father's Day because we are undeserving and unworthy of your love and your grace and your mercy today. It's in your name that we pray. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. There's three parables in Luke chapter 15. Pastor Matt is going to start a new series next week. Uh, Pastor Matt's with his, with his dad this morning, by the way. Uh, they're visiting his family. Uh, and, uh, but, so next week, he's going to start a new series on the parables. And so I asked, hey, are you doing uh, Luke chapter 15 and the parable of the prodigal son? And he said, no. Uh, and he said, go for it. So I started planning. And then a week ago, he said, Ray, are you doing that? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, oh, okay. He wanted, uh, Luke chapter 15 is an amazing, uh, just amazingly simple uh, passage to see the love of God. So as we kind of approach parables, so there's a couple of things that, that are key to understanding the parables, right? So the, uh, the, the idea, first, you have to understand the context. Right, context matters. When you're looking at a parable, uh, like we're we're going to do today, and then over the next several weeks, uh, you need to understand what's going on. Right? Who are the people involved? Uh, what's being said? What, what's happened right before this? What happens right after this? Context matters when you're trying to understand uh, a parable. So that's the first thing that you need to you need to look at. The second thing when you're looking at the parables, and and really this is true for all scripture, uh, but. Uh, but specifically for the parables. The second thing is you need, to, you need to understand or try to find out what's the one main point, right? Parables typically were taught so that there's one point that Jesus is trying to get across in the New Testament when he uses parables. He's trying to teach one thing. There's lots of details that kind of emphasize, but, but there's really one main thing, one main uh, teaching that Jesus is trying to point that he's trying to get across, 
So let's look at the context. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to have verse 1 through 3 on the screen. The rest of Luke chapter 15, I'm not, because there's lots of verses we're going to read. And so um, it'd be a good opportunity to open your Bible or, or uh, turn in your smart device uh, to Luke chapter 15. But let's look at the context. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. And I almost started, kept going, right? Because you just want to keep going. But this is the context. The first three verses, or the first two verses specifically, give the context. And so you look at, at who's there. Who's he talking to? What's the setting that Jesus is, uh, is, is teaching in? And he, it, he's, it's in a spot with tax collectors and sinners, right? So they're drawing near to him. These the tax collectors, uh, the tax collectors and sinners would have been the the most uh, vile or hated group by the Pharisees and scribes, and so you couldn't have had two groups that were more opposed to one another. For the tax collectors, uh, the tax collectors were were really traitors and thieves. That's how they were viewed, right? They were uh, they were agents of the Roman government, and their job was to take. Jewish wealth, collect the wealth and pay it back to the Roman, uh, the Roman government, who the Jews saw as oppressing them, right, as, as, as ruling over them, occupying Israel. And so the tax collectors were, uh, were, uh, were really traitors and thieves because they would, they would take more than they needed, right? And they would take more than what they were required and they would keep some of it for themselves. The sinners uh, were another group that, uh, that really didn't care about the religious people of the day, right? They didn't, they didn't follow after the Pharisees and scribes. They, didn't, they weren't concerned with the rules and the regulations of the law or being religious. They, they're like, hey, that, that stuff doesn't matter, right? That stuff's not important. And so for the Pharisees and scribes, this was the worst of all things. You're saying that the law doesn't matter, you're saying that the things that we're supposed to do to be holy and to be good or right before God are unimportant? And so for the Pharisees and the scribes, this was, uh, I mean, this was heresy, right? And so they, these two groups of people were hated. And so then you have the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling because they are coming to Jesus and they are listening. They wanted nothing to do with the religion that the Jewish leaders had to offer, but they wanted to know this Jesus because he was different. They wanted to know they, there was something about him, and so they were drawing near. And so this is the context, right? So there's two groups of people uh, that, that are present, and Jesus is trying to teach them. Uh, he's, try, he's trying to communicate to them uh, some truths. And so the three parables that we're going to look through, uh, they're, they're going to they're gonna speak to the, the context of these groups of people. And so what's the main point? Right, So as we look through the three chapters, I'm going to give you kind of some application for us uh, as we look through uh, the three parables. But what's the main point of the parables uh, is that they really focus on the relationship of God, our Father, and to us in salvation. How does he relate to us in salvation? And so there's three, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son or the lost son. And it's the idea that one, the, one of the main truths is that God pursues us. Right, so in each of the uh, each of the the first two parables, uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin, God is going to pursue us. He's the shepherd pursuing the lost sheep, or he's the woman finding uh, finding the lost coin. So he pursues us in salvation. And the second thing is that the parable of the prodigal son it says he joyfully accepts us when we return. So he's chasing after us, and when we're ready, 
He's ready to accept us joyfully. So those are the main points that, uh, that we're going we're gonna to see as we read through this chapter. Uh, but for Father's Day, I want to focus on how we can celebrate him and rejoice about him being our Heavenly Father. What are the things? How, how did the fact that he pursues us and that he graciously receives us or readily receives us, how can we worship him because of that? And so the first thing we're going to see is you are valued. We can rejoice and we can celebrate that God is our heavenly father because he values you, right? So let's read verses uh, three through seven. This will not be on the screen. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now, Jesus, when he uses the parables, he often, he, he's using uh, stories or examples that they could relate to, right? And so for us, we're removed. Most of us are not sheep farmers uh, or shepherds, right? And so it's hard when we, uh, to read this uh, story and truly get the depth of the meaning or the cultural implications. So for the shepherd, right? So he has 100 sheep that have been placed into his care, and then one is missing, now, this is not, well, I still have 99, so that's better than, that's better than uh, 98, right? So one goes missing, I'm okay. For the shepherd, this was, this was significant. If, if, a, if a sheep were to go, to go missing and it wasn't because of a predator, he'd be responsible. He'd be, he'd be to blame, right? So his name would be tarnished. His, uh, he, he, he would be looked upon as like, hey, you're careless. You don't care. You don't do your job well because you let one sheep go. You, and so he would be responsible. He'd also have to pay for it, right? He would have to pay for it out of his own pocket. These likely weren't his sheep that he was watching. And so he would be responsible. And so this was an important aspect where when one sheep were to go, to go missing, why would he leave the 99 to go find the one? It's because the 99 were safe, right? They weren't in danger. But the one is gone and he doesn't know where it's at. So he's got to go find it because it is in danger. And so this is the context uh, so that, that they would have understood. And it really puts it as stark, this idea that you are valued, really puts in stark contrast um, how I share the gospel, right? So uh, sometimes I feel like I, I overemphasize the fact that none of us are good. None of us are worthy. None of us deserve forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ that's offered to us. And that's true, right? The scripture says that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, that none of us can earn it, that it's a free gift that God offers to all of us who would believe in him. And so I emphasize the fact that you are no good. And yet, in that, God pursues us. He values us, values us and no, even, even though we are not worthy, right? Even though we are undeserving, he values us enough that he pursues us and he chases after us. I mean, think about it, right? The God of this universe, the creator of this universe, the Lord of lords and king of kings, the, 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 with whom all majesty and power sit, he, the God who can do anything, he values each and every one of us. We're the lost sheep that he pursues, and that's how the tax collectors and the sinners would have seen it. They're like, really? God, 
God loves me enough to chase after me, to leave the 99 to come and find me, right? So we, we are valued. He values us. He chases after us. He pursues us. Despite our mess, despite what you've done in life or what you've experienced or what others have done to you, does, he values you regardless of your education or background or your, your, your skin color. It doesn't matter. He values you enough that he sent his son to die on the cross for each and every one who would believe. He pursues us. And while we're undeserving, he values us. He sees us as people of worth. You're valued. And the second one, so we're going to look at the lost coin, is we are tre- you are treasured. So read with me verse 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I wonder... What in your house goes missing a lot, right? So wives are looking at the husbands uh, at the moment. <laughs> um, if you have kids in our house, right? So maybe it's the car keys go missing and you're trying to leave and you can't find the car keys, right? I'm assuming that when you start driving kids, that may be a, an issue, right? I'm not ready for that yet. Andrew is 12 going on 13 and is already like practicing shadow driving. I'm like, oh, this is scary. Um, Maybe it's the car keys that go missing. Maybe it's the checkbook. Some of us still have checkbooks. Um, Maybe it's the Bible on Sunday morning. You're like, where's my Bible? I can't find it. Um, For us in our house, what goes missing all the time is the Roku remote. Okay, Roku is a streaming device, right? So we we don't have cable uh, television. We we don't get antenna service where we live. And so we have just a little box. And the remote's only about three inches long, right? One inch wide, three inches long. And it goes missing all the time, all the time. It's the tiniest little thing. It gets stuck in the couches, right, in the couch cushions. Uh, it, gets, uh, it gets covered up with pillows and blankets. Um, it, if it gets set on our entertainment center, it's the same color. It, they're both black, and so it's, it, it just goes missing all the time. And so when you go, go to watch television and you can't find the Roku remote, I might look, but I dread it, right? I don't like it. And so I, I just say, I give up. I'm going to go do something else until the kids want to watch television and they can't find it. Right, And so we've, we've lost a couple of Roku remotes. So I hate when something like that goes missing. They're hard to find. It's, whatever it is, it's just like, ah, oh, why? But that's, really, that pales in comparison to what she lost, right? So she lost. She lost a coin. One, uh, she had 10 silver coins, and one goes missing. This is equivalent to a woman losing her wedding ring or, or an engagement ring, right? Or the diamond falling off the engagement ring. This is something significantly valuable, and so for her, for this to go missing, she was, she was beside herself, right? If you've ever, uh, your uh, mom's probably more than this, more than dad's for this, but if you go to the grocery store and you turn around and your child's not there and you, your heart leaps up into your chest and you're like, where's my child? Or you're looking all over the place, right? They're, they're playing in the backyard and then you go out in the backyard to get them to call them in and you can't find them. Right? This is the idea. This, this, is, this is what she would have felt. This is something so valuable to her that she's lost and she's like, oh no, what, what happened? Right? And so, this is if you ever, um, 
I don't know if this happened. This hadn't happened to me. You lose a wedding ring outside in the grass, right? And you're trying to find it, uh, especially if it's dark outside. I mean, it's, one of, it's nearly impossible. And so if that's what this woman is facing. She's lost a coin that, that really that signifies her marriage. Uh, it's something that should be truly valued and cared for. People would notice. She would wear it uh, on her head, and people would notice the one is missing. And it would reflect upon her that she had lost it. And so she, she lights a lamp. They didn't have natural lighting. Like, we really value natural lighting. But they wouldn't have had natural lighting, so she would have had to light a, light a lamp, and she swept the house, right? Um, it could easily have been uh, covered in dirt, and so she saw, sought it out diligently. She treasured. It was something that she treasured, and so she sought it out. So the idea that God values us and treasures us, these are, these are really two aspects of the same thing, of, of the depth of God's love and compassion that he shares for us. Right? The idea that, that you're valued means that, that you're worth a high price, something that, that Jesus was willing to die for. But something that, that you're treasured, right? It, it really speaks to um, in a verse in Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. And, it, and it's echoed slightly in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9. It says, For you are a people holy to your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. You are God's treasured possession. In this world, when people cast us aside with the smallest mistake or when you're no longer needed in your life, when, when relationships break up for the smallest of things, when we can feel like we are worth nothing and add nothing and contribute nothing, you are God's treasured possession. He treasures you. He made you exactly like you are. Does that cause you to, it should cause you to be amazed. It should cause you to be drawn into worship that he loves you that much, that he treasures you. He does more than tolerate you. He doesn't look upon you with disgust or disappointment. He treasures you. He desires to care for you. You are valued, you are treasured, and then you are graciously loved. This is the last, uh, the, the story of the prodigal son. So we're going to, this is a longer passage. So we're going to read verses 11 through 24. And we're going to come back to the second. There's two sons in this uh, story. We're going to come back to the second son in just a minute. Verses 11 through 24. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he, had, <clears throat> when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that, of that country, who sent him out into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, for my, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they, and they began to celebrate. So we're going to look at the second half, verse 25 and following in just a few minutes. But I wanted to look at the younger son, uh, the first part with the younger son first. And this is something that would have shocked Jesus's audience, right? In, in our, in, when we read it, we're kind of like, man, that's really not a nice thing for this son to do, right? To go to his dad and say, dad, hey, can I have my inheritance now? Can, I, can, can you give it to me now? I don't want to wait 30 years until you die. Can you just give it to me now? We, we think that's kind of rude, but the reality is this would have shocked Jesus's audience because this was the equivalent of the son screaming at his dad, I hate you. I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so that I could have all your stuff. Some of you may have, as parents, may have experienced uh, outbursts from your immature children uh, of anger where they have said things that hurt you. And that's what this, that's what this is. That's what this is. This is what the son is doing uh, to his father. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I'm done with you. One scholar says that uh, in all of Middle Eastern uh, literature, uh, there is no reference to a son ever asking for an inheritance or talking about inheritance with his father except this story. It just wasn't heard of. If they were going to talk about inheritance, it was something that the father would bring up. It was something that the father could discuss. The father could initiate. But it was never something the child did. It was never something that the child pursued or talked about because they treasured their parents and they wanted them to be around. And so this was so outside the cultural norm that this would have shocked the audience of both, both sides, both the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes. It would have shocked them. But that's not the main point of the story. The main point of the story is how the father responds in each aspect of the story. And so the father responds, it says in verse 11, sorry, in verse 12, at the end of it, he says, and he divided his property between them. So he had two sons, the younger and the older. The older son uh, had two-thirds, had right to two-thirds of the property, and the younger son had right to one-third. And so he divided it. These were words that would have driven a dagger to his heart that would have hurt significantly. And yet the father doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't respond uh, in, uh, in judgment upon his son. He responds with patience. And so he does what his son wants likely knowing what's going to happen, right? So his son goes off. He goes off to a land. He squanders all of his wealth. When all of his wealth is gone, all of his friends are gone because he has no more money. He finds himself working on a pig farm, feeding pigs. 
but no one would give him anything to eat. The pigs got more than he got. And so he desired to eat what they did. And so he decided, right, there came a point in the story where uh, most the, all, th- all three chapters are largely focused on God, uh, on the father, or, or on the, the shepherd and the woman. Uh, but th- there's a couple of points. So then in verse 17, it says he came to himself, right? Verse 17, the, the younger son, it says he came to himself. This is the idea that he finally realized how bad he'd messed up. He finally realized that, that he had ruined everything, that his choices had brought him to this point. He had rebelled against his father. He came to himself. He woke up and realized how stupid he was, right? It is really what it is. He woke up and realized how stupid he was, and he looks at his father, and he recognizes, perhaps for the very first time, that his father is good. My father treats his servants better than this, better than I'm treated here. My friends are gone the guy that hired me won't even feed me. He looks at his father and perhaps for the first time recognizes he is good and generous and longs to just go to his father and maybe he will treat me like a servant. But he doesn't stop there, right? If he just stops there and realizes that, that he'd messed up, realizes that he had made bad choices, then, then maybe that wouldn't be, maybe that would just be regret. Right? Sometimes we, we mess up and we make bad choices or uh, something happens in life and we regret that that thing has happened to us. Right? I regret that I find myself in this situation, that somebody found out about something, that, 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 that I made a mistake. It's regret over the circumstances. It's not true remorse and brokenheartedness. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on further and he says, he says I have sinned. Right? So he prepares a speech. Anybody, you're going to have a hard conversation. You kind of think ahead, what am I going to say? That's what the son is doing, right? So he says, he, he's preparing in his head, what am I going to say to my dad? And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, right? He goes beyond saying, I made a really, really stupid decision. He said, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you because I rebelled. I wanted things my way. I hated you. I was angry, right? So this is a step beyond just regret. This is true repentance that is happening in his heart. And he is willing to go to his father to say this. And so this is a true turning point. The first two passages are God pursuing us. But in this passage, we see the responsibility or our, our responsibility to return to God, right? He's pursuing us. He's pursuing us. We're walking away from him, but he's still chasing. He's always right there. And he has to, we have to stop and we have to turn. And that's what this son is doing. He stops and he turns to the father that is pursuing him. And so there's repentance that's happening in his life. But then let's look back to the father, right? The son is not the key point in the message. The father is. And so he, in verse 20, he, he goes to his father. And what is the father doing? The father is looking for him. There's no cell phones, right? There's no text messages. There's no emails. There's no faster, uh, faster way of communication. And so the father has no clue what's going on in his son's life. And yet his father is looking for him. He's waiting for his son to return. And so his father saw him off and saw him far far off and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. He ran to his son. 
This was an elder, uh, an older man or an elderly man that this was undignified of him to run to his son. And probably what was going through his mind, right? His son was going to come and he was likely going to have to pass other people, pass through a village or pass other farms. And they would have all known what he'd done. They would have all known how he treated his dad. And yet his father runs to him because he doesn't want anybody to anybody else to worry or say he wants him to know that he accepts him. Right? They would have wondered, is he going to forgive him? What's the dad going to say? What's going to happen when he gets home? Is there going to be a big blow up, a big explosion? And the father says, I, I, I was waiting for you. And so he runs uh, in, in as undignified way as he could uh, to get to his father or get to his son that is returned to him. And so his son starts the speech, right? He's prepared the speech. He starts his speech in verse 21, but he doesn't finish it because the father interrupts him. Right? The father knows what he's going to say. He says, son, I love you. Right? The son was coming back to be a servant. To say, dad, will you at least take me back to be like one of, uh, one of the lowly servants that you care for and are generous to? And the father doesn't even let him finish. Right? He, the, he starts his speech in verse 22. He cuts him off. And then he says, hey, bring the robe. He's going to be the guest of honor. Right? He's going to be, he, he is going to be the, the guest of honor where everybody knows how important he is. Bring the ring. He's going to have authority. It's going to be like he never left. He's part of the family. Put shoes on his feet where you're going to care and provide for him. And go kill the fattened calf and, and let's eat and celebrate. This is a picture of how the father graciously loves us and stands ready to receive each and every one of us. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who receive him, who believed in, believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God. Ephesians 1, 5 says he invites us into adoption, right? It speaks of us being adopted into his family. God invites us to be a part of his family. He graciously loves us regardless of what, what we've done. And so the first story is really we see, see a young man that, that hurts and offends his father, but his father graciously receives and loves, uh, loves him when he turns or returns to him. But the second story says, shows, shows another option, right? Shows another way to respond to the father. And so verse 25 through 32, the older son's not happy with what's going on. It says, now his older son is, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. This, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the older, the older brother, the older son uh, is not happy. He doesn't look upon his father as good and generous. He looks upon his, older, his father as foolish 
He looks upon his, his father as, uh, as, as weak. He doesn't understand. Why is he honoring the son that rebelled? Why is he honoring the son that ran away? Why is he honoring the son that disgraced his name? What has he done for me? I've been the good son. I've obeyed. I've worked hard. People praise me. Why does the father love my brother more than me? You see, the focus for the older son is on himself. It's on himself. He's no different than the younger son, except that he hasn't come to that point of repentance to realize how stupid and foolish he is and hasn't realized how good and generous the father is. And he gets into an argument with his dad. I mean, it, it would have been his job. He should have been the uh, part of the host, one of the hosts for the party that they were having for his brother, but he refused to go out. And so his father comes and says, hey, son, come. And he says no, and he gets into an argument with his dad, almost as hurtful as his, older, his younger brother saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But again, the father doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't respond by pushing him away. He responds with grace. He responds with love because he loves this older son too, and he desires, longs for this older son to understand where he's gone wrong and to turn. He longs to see that he, he longs his son to see that he's good. Jesus's audience of the tax collectors and sinners and the tribes and Pharisees couldn't have missed the message, right? They couldn't have missed the message that the younger son represented the tax collectors and sinners who had wanted nothing to do, had rebelled against, uh, against the Jewish laws and customs and wanted nothing to do with God. And yet they were coming to the point where they realized, man, we've really messed up. And the older son, the the younger son represented the tax collectors and sinners. It represents us. And Jesus stood ready to receive them. He came to earth because he was pursuing them. And the older son represented the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus stood ready to receive them as well. Right? Sometimes we forget that. We forget the fact that he was ready to love and to receive the Pharisees and scribes who opposed him no matter what because he was threatening to them. He wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted or uh, they were expecting. Even though they were, most of them would reject him because they didn't think they needed him, they thought they were good enough, he still stood ready to receive them. He stands ready to receive anyone that would come to him and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. He stands ready to receive any of us that cry out to him and say, God, I have sinned. I need your forgiveness. He stands ready to receive you. He values you. He treasures you. And he graciously loves you. He just asks that we turn to him, regardless of where life has you today. Ask him to forgive you and give him your life. Will you receive him today? So I, in, a, in, in an audience today where we have a lot of our normal church members that are off visiting their dads, most likely, uh, I, I don't know everybody in the room today. So where, where are you at today? God stands ready. He's pursuing you. He's only one step away the entire time, and he stands ready. So I'm going to pray, uh, and as I pray, um, you can cry out to God. And say, God, I want to be your child. I want to be your son or daughter. 
I want to give my life to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, God, I thank you. I thank you for just the image of a perfect Heavenly Father who is patient, Lord, who is compassionate. God, you show us your grace and your mercy. God, when we are unworthy and undeserving, you find worth in us. You valued us, valued us enough to die on the cross for us, God. And I pray that that would, that would cause us to be amazed. Lord, that we would never grow tired of this story, that we'd never grow tired of the gospel and the salvation of your death and burial and resurrection on the cross. Lord, never grow tired of, of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to not grow familiar with it, but to stand in amazement at it. God, I thank you. Lord, and for anybody that, that you're working on their hearts today, Lord, I pray that they would know that regardless of where they're at today, Lord, you stand ready to receive them. Whether they're the younger brother or the older brother today, God, we thank you that you allow us as sinners to come to you and cry out to you for forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. And Lord, you give it freely. Thank you. In Jesus' name.